Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. How much of our personalities are truly within our control? What is known about how the genes we inherit affect our behavior? The science that studies these questions is molecular biology. Looking at life from the genes up, molecular biology has given us insight into the hard links between genes and human behavior. Seymour Benzer, a pioneer scientist who studied the genetics of fruit flies, is the hero of a book called Time, Love, and Memory, a great biologist and his quest for the origins of human behavior, by Jonathan Weiner. Jonathan Weiner won the Pulitzer Prize in 1995 for his work on the finches of the Galapagos Islands and provides an analysis of Benzer's genetic studies and raises questions about how changes in molecular biology will affect life in the 21st century. I spoke with Jonathan Weiner in May 1999 from his home in Pennsylvania and asked him to discuss how genetics affect human behavior. question that you can ask in in biology. It's one of the oldest questions in science, really. How do you go from uh, the meeting of a sperm and an uh, an egg, let's say, to nine months later, a human baby with not only ten fingers and ten toes, but the instinct to breathe and the instinct to cry and, uh, and all of the incredible ancestral baggage that uh, we take for granted and uh, the resemblance to uh, mom and dad and the 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 traits the the personality traits that skip a generation all of that fascinates us and has always fascinated us in one way or another and i think what's exciting about our moment in uh, uh in human history is that for the first time biologists can begin to give us some hard answers to those old uh, nature-nurture conundrums that used to tangle us up uh, inextricably all through recorded history. I think it would be good to identify some of those answers, uh, but first, uh, I think it would be important to point out, and maybe you can do this for us, the different sections in the brain over which we have no control, like heartbeat and respiration and blood pressure, uh, versus those where we have more control. Uh-huh. All of that is automatic. Uh, uh, and uh, Francis Galton, the cousin of Charles Darwin, once tried to experiment with that. You know, Galton was the man who started, uh, started the modern... Uh, uh, notion of eugenics that uh, uh, that it might be possible to alter the course of human evolution by by uh, uh, selective breeding. He was inspired by reading the Origin of Species and uh, leaped to this idea. He coined the word eugenics, and uh, more than anyone, tainted this whole enterprise so that. So that today, talking about it, you can't talk with pure enthusiasm, uh, uh, since you know that this kind of effort has already led in uh, in our uh, 
uh, century to the Nazi Holocaust. Uh, the effort that Galton made was to control his own breathing, to see if he could make that voluntary. And he tried for about half an hour to try to control his breathing and ended up in a panic because he began to feel that he had learned to control his breathing and now it was up to him to take each breath or he would suffocate. But that really wasn't the case. It wasn't really the case, no. And, uh, and you know, so much, so much of, uh, of our personalities are, uh, are also out of our control. Uh, I listen to my own voice right now and the way I'm talking and I hear my father. Uh, I sound more and more like my father every day and I've even reached the point of no return, I guess, at which it doesn't bother me anymore how much I'm like my father. Now, how much of that is in the genes? How much of that is in our control uh, or, or out of it? I, I, I think those are the sorts of questions that this field is beginning to be able to answer. Or how much of it is uh, how you learn to speak. You, you learn to speak English uh, from your parents and the inflections that they use and the words that they would choose, you primarily learn from them. That's true. The, but, uh, the hero of, of uh, my book, Time, Love, Memory, is a man named Seymour Benzer, who is a great biologist at Caltech in Pasadena. And Benzer was led to these questions uh, and opened up this field of genes and behavior from an entirely new angle back in the 1960s when his second daughter was born. He, he found his first daughter, Barbie, delightfully lively, and he found his second daughter, Martha, delightfully calm and placid. And Martha was calm from the first week in the crib. So uh, Seymour and his wife Dottie were looking at Martha and thinking, are we really doing anything that different? She was, uh, she was different from that first week in the crib, and it, it seemed just uh, the most natural guess to Seymour that uh, those differences had to be inherited. Those differences had to be in the genes. So that's what set him out on his quest to try to find links hard links between genes and behavior and he was uniquely qualified to do that because Benzer with Watson and Crick helped to uh, found this this science that we now call molecular biology the science that looks at life from the genes up from the molecules up and uh, by uh, well in 1953 the year that Watson and Crick put together their their now celebrated model of the double helix, which showed the world what a gene is made of and what it looks like atom by atom. In that same year, Benzer figured out how to make a detailed map of the interior of a gene. So together, Watson, Crick, Benzer, and a few other people, including Gunther Stent, uh, who uh, uh, works on the West Coast as well, managed to open up this huge, extraordinary interior universe to, uh, to scientific exploration. That's the uh, universe of the hard links between genes and behavior. That's right. Uh, and of course, molecular biology goes in a, in a zillion directions besides the question of behavior. That one fascinates me, and I think it fascinates all of us, but uh, uh, also in the directions of, of medicine and cellular physiology, you know, and basic science, just trying to understand how life works down at the molecular level. All of that became possible once 
uh, once biologists knew what they were talking about, they knew what a gene was, and they could begin to figure out what the genetic code was, Benzer and uh, Crick were central in that effort. So Benzer decides after 10 years of mapping genes, do, you know, really pioneering work that deserved a Nobel Prize. Many people were, were mystified that his map of the gene did not receive a Nobel Prize back in the in the uh, 1950s and early 1960s. It was expected annually. But Benzer got got to the point where he felt mapping genes was, was rote work, and he wanted to move on into the next mystery. And the next mystery was that mystery lying in the crib. What what possible route does life take from molecules from that twisted double helix to a trait like uh, calmness or liveliness and vivacity? What makes the difference? And, uh, and so Benzer began to look around for a way, to, uh, a way into that problem. And this is when he uh, established the experiments with the fruit flies. That's right, and it was serendipitous too. It, it turns out to have been a very a, a fateful step, but at the time he was flying blind. Uh, he was looking. He was visiting the lab of, of Roger Sperry that year. This is in the mid '60s now. He was visiting the lab of Sperry, who's famous for his work on split brain patients. Uh, you know, people who have severe epileptic seizures sometimes are treated by. Uh, uh, surgically by severing the corpus callosum, which is the uh, um, the tissue that connects the right and left halves of the brain. So that the two halves of the brain are physically separated. And now electrical seizures, that's right, can't pass uh, uh, between the two halves, and uh, and so there, this, the seizure problem is greatly reduced. But in uh, certain circumstances, those people behave very strangely because their uh, their two halves of their brain can't communicate with each other normally. Uh, Benzer was in that lab and he was watching the split brain uh, work at a very early stage. He was watching people studying uh, the brains of goldfish and hamsters and rabbits and uh, all sorts of all sorts of animals. He was thinking about studying genes and behavior using bees or, uh, or spiders. Spiders didn't turn out to be a very good idea because so often after they mate, the female eats the male spider, so it's hard to raise families of spiders. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That's right. So um, Benzer was looking around, and, and just by chance, right down the hall from, from Sperry's lab was the, um, the lab of a fly man, one of the last lords of the fly from the very great early days of genetics because the modern theory of the gene really came out of a fly bottle. It was uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan, the biologist then at Columbia in the first years of the 20th century who was able to prove using simple experiments breeding fruit flies in little milk bottles stoppered with cotton that uh, in fact, genes do exist, and genes are on chromosomes in the in the centers of each living cell, and uh, and that they can be uh, located on the genes. Uh, the first mutant that Morgan found was a white-eyed fly. Most fruit flies have brilliant red eyes, and uh, Morgan. 
for white eyes and the next generation and the next generation. And that really opened up this field. Well, Morgan moved his fly room and uh, all those milk bottles and the whole operation to Caltech in, uh, I think it was the 1930s. And, uh, and uh, by the time Benzer went there in the 60s, Morgan was gone, but, uh, uh, but Morgan's students, best student's best student, Ed Lewis, uh, was still cultivating the flies, breeding the flies, and extending the fly, uh, uh, the fly work, uh, doing work that would later receive a Nobel Prize. And uh, he was right down the hall from Sperry. And he was a night owl. And Benzer is very much of a night owl, still is. Uh, works through the night, sleeps during the mornings, never gets into the lab before 1 o'clock or so in the afternoon. So Benzer got to know Lewis, and Benzer one day borrowed a fly, uh, a fly bottle and uh, some flies and a couple of test tubes. And he set up an extremely simple experiment, which is Benzer's hallmark. He's always... He's been famous for uh, pretty witty experiments, as someone described them. So what Benzer did as a way into the genes and behavior question, and it was just a way in, uh, no one could have imagined at that point how fruitful, no pun intended, this group would be. But uh, he, set up, he, he set up a sort of a light at the end of the tunnel experiment. He put, two, he put some flies in a test tube, and he closed the test tube with another test tube so that he now had a long glass tunnel in effect. Can, can you picture that? Oh yeah, sure. I, I'm sure our listener can too. Okay, good. And, uh, and then uh, he set up a dim light at the far end of the test tube and uh, turned out the uh, overhead lights. So now these flies in, in, were, had a light at the end of the tunnel and they had a simple choice. They could stay where they were at one end of the tunnel, or they could move toward the light. And most of the flies moved toward the light, just as moths move toward a candle flame, and just as you or I would probably move toward a light if we found ourselves in a strange place in the dark, and there was a, a dim light ahead. Well, Jonathan, I want you to tell us about the results and what we learned by these fruit fly um, experiments in the light at the end of the test tube. But first, I want to tell our listeners that we're talking this week with Jonathan Weiner. He's the author of a new book called Time, Love, and Memory, uh, subtitled A Great Biologist and His Quest for the Origins of Behavior. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jonathan, uh, tell us what uh, was learned by these fruit fly studies. Okay. You know, uh, it, sounds, it sounds almost uh, absurdly simple to look at behavior in flies, and yet Benzer and his students found incredible things. First, they found that uh, uh, some flies did not move toward the light while the other flies did, and that led to um, mutants like uh, photophobe. They, just, they called one of their discoveries photophobe because it acted as if it were afraid of light. Uh, so they were able to trace that particular trait to a gene in the fly. And then they started looking for uh, what I think are more interesting kinds of, of uh, behavior, normal and mutant behavior in the flies. One of their breakthroughs, their first breakthroughs, was a study of the fly's uh, circadian rhythms. Circadian meaning, of course, about a day, 
flies and human beings and most other animals and even plants on the planet have circadian rhythms. We get up in the morning, we, uh, some of us uh, try to take a nap in the middle of the afternoon, we go to sleep at night. Most of us follow a cycle, a circadian cycle, most of the time, and so do flies. Even if you put them in a dark room away from the sun uh, with no, no cues as to the passage of time, no external cues, they will still get up in the morning, go to sleep in the middle of the afternoon, uh, then uh, go to, uh, for a siesta, go to sleep again at night on a roughly 24-hour cycle uh, because the uh, clock that's ticking is, is ticking inside their cells. It's a clock that's given them by their genes. And Benzer and a student of his named Ronald J. Kanopka, back in 1971, published what, what looks now like a revolutionary paper in which they identified the first, uh, the first clock gene ever discovered. They called it period because, because it gave a period to all the rest of the fly's behavior. Well, how does what Benzer taught us relate to understanding different styles of human behavior and different personalities within people? Well, you see, it was as if they had taken off the back of the clock for the first time. You know, our, our own internal clockwork of genes, of, of genes is like a, uh, an, an elaborately constructed, uh, interconnected set of gears and escapements. And this was the first gear in the, uh, in the clockwork that they'd found. And they found many others affecting the sexual instincts of the flies, and affecting their ability to remember and forget because memory itself is a gift that's given us by our genes. And all of those genes, or uh, many of the most significant ones, have turned out to be uh, very simple, uh, uh, very similar in human beings because the, we're talking about fundamental behavior now, like getting up in the morning or going to sleep at night or remembering uh, that you don't want to head into uh, that particular odor because last time you did you had a horrible uh, you got a horrible shock you know the Pavlov's dog kind sure. of well uh, those experiments in flies led to the discovery of a gene called Kreb uh, in flies and Kreb is a memory gene in flies and in mice and in dogs and in human beings uh, and uh, you can manipulate that gene I did this, in fact, uh, at a laboratory in Cold Spring Harbor run by Tim Tully, who is uh, one of Benzer's best students' best students. You know, we're talking about a real saga here of generations working on this nature-nurture problem, beginning in the first years of the century and reaching a kind of climax now at the end of it. So in Tully's lab, two, um, two young biologists, uh, set me up at a, at a TV monitor uh, as if to play a video game. Floating on the screen was a fly embryo. And with a joystick, I could manipulate on the screen a very fine needle. In fact, it was microscopic, but I could see it on the screen. And I manipulated that needle toward the rear end of this fly embryo. Uh, when it was at just the right spot, I hit a, a foot pedal and a piece of DNA jetted into the embryo. From another fly? 
Well, actually, this was a piece of DNA that they had uh, engineered in the laboratory. It was a Krebs gene, which uh, had been tinkered with so that it would insert itself in the fly embryo in such a way that that fly's descendants, when that fly grew up and passed on its genes, it would pass on the artificial gene that I had just inserted, and it would produce a family of flies with, get this, a photographic memory. Those flies would have a memory in, in, uh, in certain crucial ways uh, uh, ten times more acute than in ordinary flies. And again, that Krebs gene is a gene that is crucial to memory, not only in flies but in human beings. So that there's no, uh, there's no essential uh, uh, difference between the experiment that I just uh, had, per had just performed and the experiment that one can imagine will be considered uh, not many years in the future. Uh, injecting Krebs genes uh, or other genes for genetic enhancement into human embryos. All the same genes involved, all the same technology involved. Uh, it won't happen um, tomorrow because it's very chancy work setting aside the, uh, the ethical problems, which are enormous. The technical obstacles are such that... Uh, uh, that injection has only a one in a hundred or one in two hundred chance of taking in the right way, uh, and if it takes in the wrong way, you uh, you have a, an embryo that dies a very early death, doesn't even reach adulthood. Whether it's a fly or a human embryo. Exactly. So uh, we're not talking about something that uh, that is going to be attempted tomorrow, but uh, biologists that I've been. Um, um, talking with believe that uh, human cloning, the, the cloning of the first human baby is not very far away, that that will probably be something we'll see within the next five years or so, maybe much sooner. And uh, the question of uh, whether we want to start injecting genes into embryos to, uh, uh, to give them better memories or to try to give them uh, uh, better mathematical ability or musical ability uh, or athletic ability, all of those, uh, those uh, ethical nightmares are virtually upon us. Well, what is your opinion of those ethical nightmares? I'll tell you a uh, cautionary tale, Barry. In the course of my research hanging around with these fly people, as they like to call themselves, I heard about an experiment like the one I just described to you uh, involving the white gene. We were talking about the white gene a little while ago. That was the first uh, mutant fly, the one that led to, the, uh, uh, to all of modern genetics, the one that appeared in a milk bottle back in Thomas Hunt Morgan's first fly room and got everything started. Well, by the end of the 20th century, the gene white in the fruit fly was probably the best studied gene on the planet. And yet, something really bizarre happened when two fly people in Washington at uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, tried uh, uh, in the course of an experiment injecting an extra white gene into a fly. And they did just what I did. They injected that, uh, that piece of DNA, actually uh, quite a few copies of it, hoping that one would take 
into the rear end of a, of a series of fly embryos and then raised the flies to see what would happen. And you can't imagine what happened. Uh, we're just talking about a gene affecting eye pigment, but the male flies who received that extra white gene began courting each other in the fly bottles. And uh, they sang the love song that, that male flies normally sing to female flies. They sang that song to each other. And they formed long conga lines and danced around, uh, you know, sort of, sort of like uh, uh, guests at weddings. They danced around and around in, on the inside walls of the milk bottle from dawn till dusk. So you're saying that there's a possibility for a fundamental change in uh, human behavior if we start uh, getting involved in genetic engineering. Absolutely. Genes don't do uh, only the thing that only one thing at a time. Genes do many things, and so each time you you change a gene, even one letter of the genetic code, you may be getting extraordinary side effects uh, that you hadn't dreamed of. And I like to tell that as a cautionary tale because of the uh, Nazi experiments in eugenics uh, back in the middle of World War II. I mean the uh, the Aryan ideal that the Nazis were after in their blundering and, uh, and uh, sadistic effort to shape human evolution, the Nazi ideal was, uh, uh, was the tall Aryan with blonde hair and blue eyes. If there were ever a resurgence of that sort of uh, evil attempt to shape human evolution, People uh, in the middle of, a, of the Nazi camp, Nazi doctors, uh, 30 years from now, say, might be interested in, in, in trying to inject genes that would produce blue eyes. Well, the result in the, uh, uh, in the fly rooms at NIH was not behavior that would be uh, appealing to the Aryan philosophy. And we don't know what the resultant behavior will be. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan Weiner, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious, and I wish we had more time uh, because I'd love to talk about the concepts of identical twins and the interpretations of psychiatry as applied to what you've um, discussed, but maybe that's for another day. Before we close, I'd like to ask you the question that I ask all of our guests, and that is, could you please tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, I just picked up a book uh, called The Missing Moment by Robert Pollack, who is a molecular biologist at Columbia University. And uh, I was charmed by the book because he was talking about the sense of time and how different our experience of time is from that pure, cold, abstract sense of time, uh, vision of time that, that scientists uh, use when they locate events in, uh, in time and space in their experiment. Because I think here in these studies that come out of Benzer's fly bottles, uh, you have a beginning of an inroad into our inner experience. You know, time, love, memory, those words point us toward our inner, inner lives and toward a place that we thought science could never go. And yet by this road, science is beginning to go there. Well, Jonathan Weiner, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks, Barry. It's been a pleasure. Jonathan Weiner is the author of Time, Love, and Memory, a great biologist and his quest for the origins of human behavior. The book he recommends is The Missing Moment by Robert Pollack. 
Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.